Well, the text for this morning comes from Romans chapter 2. And we'll be looking specifically at 12 through 16. 12 through 16. So uh, we'll, we'll back up a little bit and, um, and start at the, uh, at the beginning of the, the chapter as there's uh, some continuous thought here going on uh, from Paul. So either just listen or read along to this portion of God's Word. This is Romans 2, verses 1 through 16. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you, who passes judgment for in that you, uh, who passes judgment for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who, by perseverance in doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first, and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. For all have sinned without the law, excuse me, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. As, uh, as I read the, the, the news this week, it came up a, a story about a, a corrupt judge. I can't remember the, the location who was, who was taking bribes uh, and... Uh, in giving favorable treatment to people, and he was caught and and sentenced to several years in jail. And I thought about that uh, that there there are few things worse in a culture in, uh, than than a crooked judge. Now, as I say, every once in a while you'll read a story about one who who uh, took bribes or or who f- gave favorable treatment to certain persons because of friendships or because of financial gain on the side, that sort of thing. Now, to those who might benefit from that sort of thing, going to such a judge, 
they would they would of course see it as a, a good thing, but but it's not. It's truly not. Judges should be true and fair and impartial. And chapter two here stresses the fact that that is what the Lord God is. He is true. He is fair. He is impartial. This means that all people are judged fairly. But it also means bad news for those who are trusting in favoritism from the judge because there is no favoritism. He is just and fair. And that means, as Paul points out in today's passage, that everyone will be found guilty. And again, as Paul is building his case for the good news of the gospel, once again this morning he is giving us the bad news that we are all under God's wrath and his righteous judgment for our sin. So let's see this as we work our way through. First, judged by the law in verses 12 and 13. Now last week we looked at verse 5 through 11 of this chapter And there we saw Paul continue the theme of chapter 2, primarily addressing Jews who believe that they are excused from God's judgment due to their status as God's chosen people. And they certainly see themselves as better than the idolatrous and sinful Gentiles that Paul condemned in chapter 1. But Paul pointed out that sin is sin no matter who commits it. And Jews commit the same sins that they condemn Gentiles for committing. In verses 5 through 11, Paul addressed how Jews and, and moral people are sinners under God's wrath, too, because there is no partiality with God. He does not play favorites, and unrepentant Jews who do not trust in Jesus are storing up wrath for Judgment Day. And he reminded us all that we will all stand before God on Judgment Day. Paul then noted the difference that will be shown on judgment between those who have been uh, saved by grace in Jesus Christ and show evidence of salvation in their lives as they bear fruit by the Holy Spirit versus selfish and sinful lifestyles of those who remain unrepentant and unsaved and who will be judged by God and condemned. Again, Paul pointed to our need in all of that of Jesus. In today's verses, Paul continues the theme of the Jews being under God's wrath for sin, just as much as Gentiles, and their need of grace and the salvation offered in Jesus by showing that God's judgment is just, as he judges all people according to the law as they received it. God judges justly, and all people are held accountable. Some know God's written law, The rest know God's law as written on the human heart. But all know it, and all fail to keep it. And all are under God's just wrath for their sins. God applies the just standard of the law to everyone, Jew and Gentile. And we begin with verses 12 and 13, where Paul answers the Jews' idea of superiority in morality because they have the written law of God. But Paul points out that God shows no favoritism, as all will be judged by the law as they had it given to them. And Jews had no advantage in simply knowing the law because they failed to keep it. Paul writes in verse 12, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law 
will be judged by the law. Paul notes the two categories of people, those Gentiles who have sinned without the law and Jews who have sinned under the law. Now, the law in in view here is the law of Moses, which God gave to his people on Mount Sinai, and specifically the Ten Commandments, which are summaries, which are a summary of God's moral law. Yet while having that law in print is certainly a good thing, merely having it doesn't make the Jew immune from equal justice in their failures to keep it. Gentiles who sinned without the written law still perish, Paul says, a word used elsewhere in the New Testament to refer to God's condemnation of the guilty in judgment. For instance, Peter in 2 Peter 3 and 6, and and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. And James 4 and 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to perish or destroy. But notice the parallel here. Those who sin under the law, that is, Jews who have the Bible, will be judged by the law. Judged here carries the sense of condemnation. In other words, the implication is that they will be judged and seen as guilty. As Paul will say in Romans 3 and 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no advantage on Judgment Day to having the printed law of God if you didn't keep it, and no one keeps it perfectly. In verse 13, Paul explains how it is how it is that Gentiles who have never read the Bible or heard it read can be rightly condemned for violating God's law. He says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Hearing the law is good. Reading the law is good. But mere knowledge of it does not justify, does not gain God's verdict of not guilty in his courtroom. One must do it, a fully obey God's law, to be declared not guilty and justified in his courtroom. We are reminded here in this verse 13 of the covenant of works. God gave to Adam, our first father, a law as a covenant of works. Life was promised to Adam and all generations who would come from him if he would perfectly obey God's command. And God promised death to Adam and all who would come from him if he broke God's law. Genesis two fifteen through 17, we read, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Now we know that Adam sinned, and so we are now under the condemnation for Adam's sin. And we are sinners by nature. And uh, Paul will pick up this theme later on in Romans. But for now, note that the covenant of works has not been revoked. All people remain under its requirement of perfect obedience. And our verse here reminds us of that, our verse 13. All people remain under the requirement of perfect obedience. And we all will stand before God to give an account on the day of judgment. 2 Corinthians 5 and 10 says, 
for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And so in our verses 12 and 13, Paul echoes the covenant of works, that if one perfectly does the law, keeps it fully, he or she will be justified before God at judgment. And yet, no one actually keeps the law. None of us fulfills the covenant of works. We all stand condemned, each and every one of us. And Jews must not pretend that their covenant relationship with the Lord God gives them an out or a boost or a special privilege in judgment because it does not. Having a written law you fail to keep does not give you an advantage on judgment day. Well, second, the law written on every heart in verses 14 and 15. And here Paul tells us that God's judgment is just and true, as people will be judged by the standard that they knew and which God gave them. And all people will stand guilty by the sin of the standard that they have. Jews are condemned by the written law that they failed to keep. And Gentiles are condemned by the law written on their hearts that they failed to keep. Paul says in 14 and 15, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, These not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Gentiles who do not have the law, that term refers to those who who have no knowledge of the written law of God, the moral law of God summarized in the Ten Commandments. Now, people sometimes ask, how can unbelievers in far-off lands or or even our neighbors or relatives who have never, never read a Bible be held responsible for or be condemned for violating a law that they do not know? And Paul's answer is that everyone knows the law. No such person exists that doesn't know the law. Everyone knows it, even if they haven't read it or heard it read. Gentiles who do not have the written law, Paul says, do instinctively the things of the law, are a law to themselves. Well, how is that so? Well, Paul follows up in verse 15, that they show that the law is written in their hearts. And people all around the world instinctively, that is by their natural condition, behave in a way that shows knowledge of, and and to some degree, conforms to the law of God summarized in the Ten Commandments and placed in their hearts. People keep from lies. People are faithful to their spouses. People keep from stealing. They, they keep from murder. Those sorts of things all around the world. Now, in spite of the great diversity of cultures and religions in the world, there is a basic sense of morality in all human beings. And that is not an accident. We are designed that way. Humans or Gentiles, all humans, are a law to themselves, Paul says, in the sense that we have a knowledge of God's standards and prohibitions on personal behavior and moral standards. Now, the word law here refers to the requirements of God, even though not known from Scripture. Paul states that it is written in their hearts. Now, the heart refers to the person the deepest part of who we are as individuals. And so God has written, or uh, we might say in in the computer age, he has hardwired or built into us 
a sense of the law. Each and every one of us has that built into us. Notice as well that the sense of the law in every heart is made clear in that their conscience bears witness and their thoughts go back and forth, sometimes accusing them, sometimes defending them. Now, conscience is that function of the heart to discern if we are keeping what we believe to be right. Now, John Frame defines conscience as the heart in its function as a moral guide. Now, our consciences in this fallen world can be misinformed and misdirected and often are, but Paul's point here is that with this built-in sense of God's law, unbelievers all around the world have a sense of doing right when they keep the law and a sense of conviction or accusation when they break it. The truth taught here is that every person knows that they violate the sense of the law that they have in their hearts. They don't always even keep their own sense of right and wrong, which God has implanted in them. Now, this goes way deeper than and truer than violating, say, um, uh, our culture's demands or our religion's demands. Those things can, can stray from God's law quite a bit, or even the civil law can stray from God's law quite a bit. But in the heart, we all have a built-in sense of right and wrong, a built-in sense of, of the Ten Commandments, and we all still violate it. And we all know it. Now, the law being on everyone's heart has great benefits for all of us. Uh, that's a separate sermon, I imagine. We could talk about how God's law, in, in, by His common grace, limits sin and misery in this world, makes it possible for us to live and for the, the world to go on from day to day as we meet kind and uh, and to some degree moral people out in the world who don't know Christ, that is a great blessing. But Paul's point is that everyone also knows that they violate their own standards and that they all stand as sinners before the holy God. Third, there will be judgment in verse 16. Now finally, Paul takes one's conscience accusing them in their hearts for violating God's law and applies it not just to everyday life, but to judgment day. Verse 16, on, that, on, on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So we will all be held accountable on the last great day of judgment as our lives are judged according to the law of God and even the testimony of each person's conscience will agree, yes, I broke the law as it was written on my heart and I knew it and I know it now. Notice in our verse that there will be a judgment day. All people will be judged at our physical deaths as our souls stand before God in judgment. As we're told in Hebrews 4, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And souls will be at death sent to either heaven or hell and all await the final judgment on the day Jesus returns, when the dead are resurrected, and all who have ever lived are judged. Revelation 20, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. 
And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. Now some uh, details then uh, we unpacked last week, so I won't repeat them. But notice here in our verse 16 uh, some things that Paul adds to our understanding. Notice that judgment day is according to my gospel, writes Paul. Uh, His point is not that his gospel is any different than Peter's or John's or, or any other apostle. Rather, he's stressing that the judgment is and always has been part of his proclamation of the gospel, uh, the good news of the offer of forgiveness of sinners and a reconciliation with them by the Holy God also comes with the bad news of Judgment Day for those who go to judgment without Christ. And so that is why Paul has been spending chapter 1 and chapter 2, and he'll go on to the beginning of chapter 3, stressing how we are all under God's wrath and judgment for our sins, and rightly so. Any gospel that neglects the bad news of sin and wrath and judgment is not a sound and true gospel. We are all guilty and deserve nothing but wrath and hell, and that needs to be made clear when the gospel is presented. Paul adds that on that day, God will judge the secrets of men. The the judgment of God is deep and all-knowing. It is it, it is without uh, bias. It will not be based merely on outward appearances or on outward actions, but also the secret things, our thoughts, our motives, our deeds when, when no one else saw or knew about things. People can hide all sorts of sinful intentions and ideas and deeds from others, but there, is, there are no secret sins that can be hidden from God and they will be revealed on that day. Hebrews 4 and 13, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him whom we have to do. And and Psalm 94 and 11 says, The Lord knows the thoughts of man. And note as well that God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. That God the Father has given judgment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will all stand before Jesus on that day. John 5 and 22, for not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. And Acts 17 and 31 says, God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And his judgment will be just and fair. Jesus will judge by the standard of the law as people knew it. The Jews will be judged by the written law, the Gentiles by the law written on their hearts and on their own consciences. And his judgment will include the secret things, be they thoughts, motives, intentions, or hidden deeds. God knows all, he sees all, and he will judge justly because he is holy and righteous and just. Psalm 9 says, But the Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment and he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with uprightness. And so Paul tells us in today's passage that the Lord is just and fair in judgment. 
that all people have a knowledge of God's law, either written on the heart and or written in the scripture, and they are all guilty of breaking it. We have all violated the covenant of works. We have all violated the law of God, and we are all under God's righteous wrath. He also has reminded Jews that they have no special privilege on Judgment Day simply by having the written law because they failed to keep it. All have sinned, Paul will say in 3.23, and he's shown in today's passage that all will be judged. The Westminster Confession says in, in chapter 6, paragraph 6, every sin, both original and actual, being a transgression of the righteous law of God and contrary thereunto, doth in its own nature bring guilt upon the sinner, whereby he is bound over to the wrath of God and curse of the law, and so made subject to death with all miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. Well, how can we apply today's verses? Well, it applies first to Jews who know the law, but think themselves privileged or immune from judgment due to being God's chosen people or being better than other people. God does not give a pass to anyone, but holds all people, including Jews, to the perfect standard of God's law. All will stand in judgment and will be judged fairly. But we should also note that professing Christians can be guilty of this same sort of false assumption of privilege or safety. There are folk who have made professions of faith who may be church members, but who trust in those outward things alone and have never trusted and repented in Jesus and do not have lives that show the fruit of salvation. Salvation certainly is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ's person and work alone. And we don't deserve salvation, and we cannot earn it by what we do, or by our status or religious deeds or any other thing. All the law does is show us in this respect our inability, our sin, and our need of a righteousness apart from ourselves the righteousness of Jesus gained by his perfect obedience to the law. Yet, as we saw last week in 5 through 11, Judgment Day will show that, that those who have been saved by grace alone in Christ alone will bear the fruit of God the Holy Spirit, will show evidence of changing grace in their heart and soul, and they will show good works. Empty religion will not produce such evidence. Ephesians 2 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Jesus says in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And Jesus says in Matthew 7 and 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. So do not trust in membership or assumptions of being better than others. That is not how salvation works because we are all sinners and there is no advantage 
if you have not trusted in Christ. You need to repent and to trust in Jesus and truly know the gift of salvation and a changed life by his grace and power. Uh, If you are unchurched, have never read a Bible, and think that you are acceptable to God when you die, that you're good enough for heaven, uh, you need to think again, because those assumptions are not based on the truth. This passage reminds us that you are a sinner, that I am a sinner, that you have broken even your own sense of right and wrong. You have not always done what you know you should do, and you have felt guilt over things that you have done, that have violated your sense of right and wrong. And that sense of right and wrong has been given to you by God himself and has been built into you. And so when you stand before God when you die, you know, and this passage tells us, that you can't claim to have kept his law perfectly. But perfection is the standard for the holy and just God. And honestly, uh, you are far from perfect, as am I. You haven't honored or thanked your Creator as you should. You have sinned against Him by not worshiping Him, by not always treating others rightly, by your sinful thoughts and words and deeds. You are just as rightly condemned as, say, religious hypocrites that you might judge externally. Paul will say in Romans chapter 3, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you can see yourself or should see yourself in that statement. Nothing you can do then can improve your situation because you continue to sin every day. The reminder here is that we are all under God's just wrath. But there is good news as he extends the offer of the gospel. Westminster Confession says in chapter 7, paragraph 3, man by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant of works, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, whereby he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give all those who are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. And so the forgiveness of sins and the the righteousness that we need is freely offered and comes only in Jesus Christ. He is God the Son, the eternal second person of the triune God who became also fully man to be the saving substitute of all who would trust in him. He came and perfectly obeyed all of God's laws, which all of us, Jew and Gentile, fail to do. Jesus is described in Hebrews 4 and 15 as the one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And 1 Peter 2 and 22 tells us, He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And yet, on the cross, all the wrath of God due to his people for their sins was put upon him. Isaiah 53 says, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have turned astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. 
but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried. But after three days, God the Father raised him up and accepted sacrifice and a living Savior. And all those who trust in him are covered in his righteousness, are forgiven by his sacrifice, are reconciled to the triune God, and enter into eternal life and fellowship with him. Romans 3 says, But now God has made known a righteousness from God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. And that new life uh, that God the Holy Spirit gives as he indwells the believer changes who we are at the deepest level and enables believers to grow in godliness and live lives that glorify him. The promise comes in Ezekiel 36. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. That no one is saved by their works, but for those who are saved, the Holy Spirit enables us to produce good works, to be godly, to grow in godliness to the glory of the God who has saved us by his grace alone. And so there is this wonderful blessing and offer of the gospel. And this is something that we all need to take hold of. For we are reminded again in our passage that whether we are churched or not, whether we know the scriptures or do not, we have a conscience. And we have a heart with the law of God on it. And we know ourselves to be sinners. And so do not go to judgment day. Do not go to your death assuming the best, hoping for the best. Because left to yourselves, you will be condemned. But there is the free offer of the gospel, the covering of righteousness you didn't earn, the sacrifice of Christ to pay for the sins that you have committed and the offer of reconciliation and eternal life with the triune God. Take hold of that, and if you already have, rejoice in the forgiveness and the eternal life and the blessing that has been given to you in Jesus Christ by God's grace alone. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you and praise you for this portion of your word and ask that you might apply it to our hearts. We thank you uh, for the conviction of sin that you speak of here uh, through Paul. We thank you for the law of God implanted in our hearts and for the conviction of our consciences. We thank you that you point out to us our sin. And we thank you for the written law of God as we have come to know that and for the conviction of sin that's given there as well. We know that this conviction is not merely meant to make us feel bad about our sins. It is to remind us that we are answerable to the holy God and that we are under judgment. And that, that realization leads us to look for a Savior. And we thank you and praise you for, for the rest of the story here, that a Savior has come and is offered to us freely. And so in the conviction of our sin, may we turn to your grace offered in Jesus Christ. We thank you for 
His sinless life, his, his sacrifice as the wrath of God was poured out on him for the sins of others and for his resurrection from the dead. And we pray that we would be trusting in Jesus Christ and know that gift of forgiveness by your grace alone. And we rejoice in that. And we give you thanks and praise for that. And we, we do all this as we rejoice in your gospel, asking all this in Jesus' name. Amen.